I'd like to first extend to you a, a good morning. And um, as always, I, I think it's wonderful that we can be here and be assembled this morning, the saints of Christ. And we come and we must recognize that we are united only by His blood and first by His gospel. And it's especially wonderful to return to the pulpit after being gone uh, last week. And uh, I, I certainly missed our local assembly. And I told Bethany, I said, you've, you've messed up my record. I haven't missed church in, in quite some number of years, but uh, it reminds me to be gracious when when we can't make it. And, and uh, I was very thankful for Brother Pat to step in and for you guys to make do and sing a cappella and all, all of the wonderful things that happened while we were gone. But uh, I come back a little different than I left. Uh, you guys know that we had a, a very large, beautiful 10-pounder. And uh, Bethany and I have rejoiced very much so over the past week. And it's a, it's a whole different walk of life for us. And I, we couldn't have done it without you guys being uh, so prayerful. And we realized that we were, we were gifted such a, a perfect yet sinful child. And we, we do recognize that, but we thank, we thank you guys. And on behalf of, of myself and Bethany, since she can't be here, uh, we, we are very appreciative of your prayers and the prayers for this specific moment, the prayers for uh, my finding a wife in the past years. And I know that some people here have been praying quite that long, several years. And I, I'm very thankful. And just all those things came to mind this week as they have culminated with uh, baby Charles. And I just ask that you guys would continue to pray for him, that he would be effectually called and that he would uh, be drawn to Christ and that he would be saved. And not only that, but that uh, in some ways I feel like that I, I wasted a lot of time as a, a teenager and in my 20s. If I would have just known that I would have become a preacher, I, 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 that's what I would hope for my child. And uh, not that he would be rich or wealthy, but that he would uh, be used for the kingdom of Christ. And that, like Paul said, that this would be his gift, uh, greater than the gift of tongues or anything else, but the gift of prophecy, that he would be able to preach uh, Christ for the sake of his kingdom. And so I just ask that you guys would pray for that from from now until the time happens and then we'll transfer from that to, to praying for his ministry but um considering the text this morning it feels like we've been absent from the book of hebrews for a, for a month to me and it's only been maybe a couple weeks so it's with great delight that we're able to return for the last few verses of chapter four and this week i want to ask you to turn and and we'll take a look at verse 13 and if you recall there has been some focus uh, this far in the chapter on the rest in Christ. And so I just want to read the passage and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Let's begin there at chapter 4 verse 8. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrows and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So Brother John would say this is the word of the Lord and... I ask that we would go before Him in thankfulness and asking for as many blessings this day as we read it. Father God, we do come before You, Lord, and we do so because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, that He has first loved us, we can come together in unity in His Word and in His person to worship and praise and to magnify and glorify and exalt uh, Your majesty. 
God, we thank you for the salvation purchased by his blood. And Lord, in this uh, time of earthly tribulation, Lord, this time in which we face uh, what they're calling a pandemic, God, we come, yes, asking for your hedge of protection around your people. God, that you would give us health and Lord, that you would not give uh, this virus victory over our bodies, God. But we don't come fearful for the virus, God. We come, uh, in fact, I pray as humbly as we know how, but Lord, joyfully, because this is a virus that is under your control, God. This is a sickness uh, that falls under the reign of your sovereignty, God. And we know with certainty, with all hope, that this will be used for your glory, or that this will be used for your kingdom, or this is no, uh, this is no uh, fall of man that will come unlike any other, Lord. This is a result of sin like anything else. God, this should be no surprise to us, things of this nature, that death is coming, that death is knocking at the door, and we only have one plea, Lord, to enter into eternity, and that is Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just thank you for him. God, we pray that uh, that this country, uh, by this will of yours and this uh, permissiveness that this virus would carry on, Lord, that it would be used for your sake and for your kingdom, and that your people would rise up, Lord, as a strong army uh, to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. God, if nothing else comes from it, Lord, if but one soul is saved in the thousands that may lose their life, what, what worth has it been, God, to save one soul? How wonderful your work is on this earth, God. And we just ask that you would give us a, the mindset that Christians should have in this time, Lord, to be thankful for all things, to be trusting in Christ at all times, and to be hoping in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Lord, we just ask that you would bless us this day in the reading of your word and the study of your text, Lord, for this is no ordinary word, but this is the living word, the word of the living God, the Christ who has risen and ascended to heaven. God, may we see these words on these pages as if we are looking at Christ himself. Lord, we just ask that you would reveal by the power of your spirit him to us. Lord, that we would increase in our love and knowledge for Christ and our service towards him. Lord, give us obedient hearts this morning as we study your word. Lord, and make us truly the church as you have designed her to be, that Christ would receive all of the glory and all of the honor. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. So we're back. And we are recalling what we've seen in past weeks, the rest in Christ and the promise of rest. It's a wonderful thing to consider all that is being said to us and to really take it just bite by bite as we have and to consider how wonderful it is that so many messages could be preached on so few verses. And we see from the text each week that Christ is prevalent, that Christ is magnified, Christ is glorified, Christ is the center, uh, Christ is uh, the climax of every verse. We see how wonderful he is. And it seems that the text would cause us to focus thus far on this rest in Christ. And this is in no uncertain terms a rest that is only for believers. This is a rest that is only for sheep. This is only uh, a rest for those called according to his purpose to receive the gospel, to respond in obedience and repentance. This is a rest for a specific small group of people, the few that find this path to life that is in Christ Jesus. This is a rest that is granted to no mere man, but a rest that is, um, or excuse me, a rest that is granted in no mere man, but a rest that is granted in the perfect Son, the Lamb of God, Jesus the Christ, the only Christ, the only Messiah, the only man who is both man and God, the man with dual nature. 
No one else have we for this eternal rest that is being spoken of. It's being presented here in chapter 4. And the text has spent really a great deal of time describing first the promise of this rest. And then it's spent a great deal of time, even though it may seem one tiny verse, the description is, is a great uh, description, a, a detailed description of the method and means by which the rest is obtained. And then lastly, it is foreshadowing of all of the other rest from the Old Testament to this very point, the very point at which we assemble today as New Testament believers. This is the crescendo with the ultimate rest being in Christ. And that's what we see this morning. Firstly, the rest was promised even in Joshua's time. And we must see that. We must see that because it is, uh, it is really the basis by which we understand the Scriptures. Because nothing about God has changed. None of His characters, none of His attributes, none of what He has been doing since the beginning of time has changed. And what we see is that because this Christ is being preached in the Old Testament in Joshua's time. This is the rest that was being spoken of. This is the righteousness that was being proclaimed. This was the necessity. This Jesus Christ, the promiser of rest. He was the necessity for the people of God that they would see his kingdom and that they would see eternal life and nothing has changed. Jesus said it every text is speaking of Him. Every single text. The rest is procured by the effectual application of Jesus Christ's good news as it is preached. And now into the past and in the future it shall remain just that. This preached good news of Jesus Christ. The only message that is a saving message. We must see that. We must come to terms with it because if we don't, we stand uh, in judgment because we would be perverting the gospel. This is the one gospel, the only gospel, the only saving gospel, and it has not changed, nor shall it be altered by God or by man. He has spoken and it is true. The foolishness of preaching is now revealing the foolishness reward. And that is to have Christ. Christ the one in whom we shall find true rest as it is described. With all the other foreshadows and the <coughs> seemingly incomplete pictures of rest that precede this one. This one of ultimate glory as we see. It is with every text that Christ is the sum and Christ is the substance. Even with those incomplete pictures, they were pointing to Christ, the temporal rest that were offered to God's people. And now we see the culmination of all these things as Christ eternally is the rest of the believer. The first and the last is He. The Alpha and the Omega is He, and He is so definitively defined as the only subject of this Word. The only subject of this Word. Though we see man, though we see sin, though we see angels, though we see cherubim, though we see so many things, Christ is the substance. Christ is the substance. And to Him is the glory of the kingdom to come. And in Him is this salvation. And these both are things that are eternal and forever. Salvation. The kingdom of God. And now we may finally see that the focus has not in fact been predominantly upon the rest but instead, it has been upon the best. And when I say the best, I'm not talking about the best rest simply, though it is in Christ, this eternal rest. I'm talking about the best who has ever lived, who has ever walked 
this earth who has ever ascended into heaven, not on the cessation from earthly things, but our focus is on the promiser rather than that which is promised. For without Christ, there is no rest. Without Jesus of Nazareth, there is no promise. Yet it is he who has existed from before all, from before all time, from before all space, before all matter. It is Christ who has existed in whom we have a man who is both duly man and God. And therefore, because of this, he is unlike anyone else and he is able to keep such a promise as this eternal rest. Now, I would describe for us this Christ who is our focus and that we're focused on the promise rather than the promiser. And we should, and we have that model in life, but we miss it. Just think about when you go to work. People work all week, and what are they focused on? They're focused on the fact that they will receive a check at the end of the week or at the end of two weeks, or at the end of the month, or whatever it may be. So it is just like with work that we have the labor during the week and the promise of pay at the end, so is the promise of God that we have the promiser, Jesus Christ, who is promising the rest. And unfortunately, some people get sidetracked and they're thinking so much about the rest that they forgot the promiser. And that is exactly what we see with our labor. It's wonderful that we get paid and it's how God has uh, provision for man to be able to obtain sustenance that he could earn money at the end of his laboring and that he could buy the things that he needs. But the real reality is that we should so much more be joyful over the labor than we should the pay because the pay is the byproduct of the labor and the labor should be for the Christian every ounce of energy and every effort that he has put into serving God. And we miss that. We're to do everything as unto the Lord and we're to be working for the kingdom of God. And so the reality is the reward is not the greatest thing, but that we are serving God. And that should be our focus when we see the promise of rest, that we're focusing on the promiser and being thankful for the rest but that it is not consuming our minds. This is how we should look at these things. And what we have in chapter 4 is really a deistic look. The God view, if you will, the side of Christ that many deny. A deistic look upon the true God whose word is truth. And in whom is one who is worthy of our hope and our belief, and that is Jesus Christ. That is why the passage really begins with these words. Let us fear, it says. Let us fear. Let us fear what? Well, we're looking back at chapter 3, and we see that we're fearing unbelief. Because the absence of fear means that we not only miss the promise... But we then serve not our God and there is no kingdom future for us to rejoice in if that is not our motive. The beginning of rest is to fear unbelief because unbelief is the ultimate separation from our great God. That's what separates us from heaven. That's what separates us from Christ. That's what separates us from righteousness because there is no other way to obtain righteousness than to believe in the one true God who has provided and obtained and secured and procured salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that verse 12 describes God's word so intently 
Look back. It says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What an outstanding description of this Word. And the problem is that even when we see that, we look at it and we're still considering the Word as an inanimate shape that is written on a page. A Word that has no life. This is not how we should look. We shouldn't uh, look at the Word this way. Not to represent the Word falsely, like many do today, but instead we should be looking at it so intently that it describes and seeing that it describes its power apart from man, apart from uh, this book that is contained in or this collection of books as simply something that you could grab at the library. But we want to look at it as apart from man, apart from his response to it, that it is still powerful and it is still purposefully used no matter what we think of it. We have no need to let the word be true in our hearts because even if we do deny it, its power still remains. And some people do that. We need to let the word be true in our hearts. You know what? The, the reality is the word is true whether we let it or not. And the truth is that Christians will not just let it, but God will purpose it that it is true and will rejoice at the fact that it is true and we didn't do any letting. We don't need to let it be true in our hearts because even if we deny it, it is so true. Its power remains. We have no need neither to pervert it in such a way that we claim our fleshly desires by manipulation of its intended use. And that's what people do. They, they do this thing with the Word. They, they call it, name it and claim it. And we'll use the Word and manipulate the Word and pervert the Word so that we can get what we want. That's what a lot of people do with it. And we don't need to do that either. The power of the Word does not... Um, does not reside again in the hearts of men. The power of the word does not reside in the confession of his tongue. But the power of the word is seated at the right hand of the father. That's the reality of the word that we read today. The power is in his title. The power is in his position. The power is in his dual nature. The power is in his name. For Jesus Christ is this living word. And he is not silent. He is not blind. He is not slack. The text describes for us a word that is in this Manner. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What did he say in Matthew chapter 10? It's, it's very interesting. Uh, we look Wednesday night at Matthew chapter 10 and then God has purposed it. Though months ago we started this, we've been reading the Word and we began in the New Testament in Matthew. And this morning, what other did Pat read than chapter 10 of Matthew? What does God say there? What is Christ saying? Verse 34, Do not assume that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have... Not come to bring peace, but a sword. The very same thing that we see here in Hebrews chapter 4. For if I have come, for I have come, excuse me, to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life 
for my sake will find it. There is the partner, if you will, the espoused text to Hebrew chapter 4 verse 12 that sets us up to understand verse 13. And here it is described from the other side, uh, if you will, just like this two-edged sword. It's got an edge on both sides. Here is the description of the Word of God and the rest in Christ that we see in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, and described there in 12. Here it is in Matthew chapter 10. Why would Christ describe the Word... In this manner. In fact, the question that we really should ask is why is Christ describing himself? For he is the Word. Why is he describing himself in this manner? Well, the text lends itself to unveil the reality that loving anything more than the Savior is actually what man is doing to replace a healthy fear of God. He's replacing this healthy fear of God with a fatal, covetous heart. That is the purpose of the text. Jesus said it there. If they do not, if they love anyone more than me, father, mother, he is not worthy of me. In fact, what he is saying, if you love anyone more than him, you are replacing the healthy fear of God with covetousness. With sin. With idolatry. And what we know from weeks past is that Christ is the judge. Right? Christ will judge. That very same judge who we see knocking on the door, preparing men for his reception, is the same judge that we see in James who stands at the door, church, ready to judge. We need to be fearful of our lowly state. So fearful that we preach the gospel, not just to our neighbor, not just to our church, but that we preach the gospel to ourselves each moment and hope that belief shall someday turn to sight. That is what Christians are called to do. A transferring from the kingdom of darkness to that of light. This is the superior, eternal advantage of knowing Christ as opposed to knowing of Christ. And thus, with all that being said, we arrive at verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Be diligent, saints, obedient to do the work of God, to keep his commandments in true submission and out of true love. For the Savior who first loved us, let us, like those who looked on the serpent in the time of trouble when they were being bitten, let us likewise look to Christ that in faith we too will not fall victim to sin which leads to death. Here is the purpose in verse 13, the reminder, if you will, uh, the focus of the fear that is brought forth in the beginning of the chapter. The word here says, there is no creature hidden. There is no creature hidden from his sight. We're reminded here, or we should be reminded here, of the very first sin. The very first attempt to hide something from God didn't work out too well. This was disobedience to God and it was of the first man, Adam. As he sinned, he foolishly thought that he could hide from the Almighty God. And you know what? Men haven't changed their way of thinking. We think that if our sin is not open, if our sin is not public, then we're good. Just because the neighbor, just because the church doesn't see our sin, it does not, in fact, mean that it is hidden. We think that we can 
like Adam, hide from the Almighty. This verse proclaims that there is no ambiguity with God's knowledge of the movements of His creation. He says, no creature hidden from His sight. Absolutely zero ambiguity with God's knowledge of the movements of His people. Of the actions of His people. Not a single created being, the Word is saying here, shall escape His knowingness. No man shall commit either a transgression or a service to the living Christ without His knowledge and the foresight of it. Nothing good that we do will be done without God knowing and nothing sinful and no iniquity that we commit can be done without God knowing. That is just the reality of God's perspective and God's omniscience and God's sovereignty and who God is in light of what man is doing and who man is. In fact, Jesus said he knows the heart. Just goes further to show us how much so that we have the evidence to support and proclaim with all certainty that Jesus Christ is God. Only he could know. Excuse me. What we see here is that all things are according to his will. And it just makes sense that way. God is the supreme creator. He is the knitter, the former of every creation, knitting and forming us in our mother's womb. He is the potter over the clay and like anyone who creates a masterpiece or anyone who forms an earthen vessel such as a painting or a clay pot or an invaluable invention he shall never allow it to escape beyond the limits of his sight or beyond the reach of his grasp think about that if that is so much true for us in the things that we make if you build a house, if you paint a painting, if you come up with some invention, anything that we do, if you bake a casserole or make a cake, you don't forget where you put it. And you don't let it get out of your sight. And this is the reality, and this is just a minute representation that we can never fully understand when it comes to God as He is the ultimate Creator because He creates from nothing. He creates by the Word of His power. He doesn't allow things to escape beyond His sight. Through mankind is the glory of God that He has created man that they would glorify Him. God is getting, He is reaping for Himself glory from mankind. Do you think if that is the truth that He would allow man to somehow hide from Him? Absolutely not. It's His means and His source by which He will gain an increasing glory for Himself because of what He has done through man and what He has done for man and what He has done through the person of Christ Jesus. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 has labored through a great deal to reveal that the divine man Christ has no limits. So when I said it, that he, didn't, he wouldn't allow it to escape beyond his limits of his sight or his reach. I was actually somewhat wrong because he has no limits. He has no limited sight. He has no limited reach. He has existed eternally and he has created solely, only in himself, everything, the totality of existence. Man can hide neither himself nor his sin from him. For if anything could be hidden from Christ, he could not be God. And if he were not God, he would have no righteousness. And if he had no righteousness, there is no salvation. And if there is no salvation, there is no completed work. And the cross would be useless. But that's not the case. 
truth is he is God. He is righteous. He is righteousness. And he is the answer to the Hosanna cry, save now. This is the answer, Jesus Christ. His redemptive work is, in fact, finished. He is altogether good. And he said himself, there is none good but God. Revealing his existence as a person of the triune God who is one God. For the text does not say there are none good but God. But it says there is none good telling us that, that, that there is only one who is good and he is God. Instead it describes a singular God. With that statement, there is none good. The truth is that this side of God is not limited as mere man to the eyes of the Lord, but it inherently includes his knowledge. His sight doesn't just include vision, but it includes his knowledge, his wisdom, his ability to comprehend every move before it is even thought of because he purposes even the evil things of man for his good, for his glory. He does not see with the nearsightedness of man, but with the omniscience of God beyond the expanse of the heavens from before the past and beyond the future into eternity. This is how God sees. And then the text says, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things, everything is open. Now we look at that and we say open. What, well, what does that mean? Well, in the simplest terms, to think of something open, it means that it can be gone into. And for God, that is the reality of everything. All things are open. All things can be seen. All things can be gone into. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing off limits. He is there. Able to see. No exemptions. Everything is unveiled. Everything is unearthed. Everything is revealed. Everything is made manifest. This is God in the flesh that we're talking about here. No exemptions as to what or who is open. <clears throat> A great example again with Adam. Like with Adam, the nakedness has always been there. God has always seen it. What we realize is that Adam didn't see the nakedness. Eve didn't know the nakedness until they had sinned against God. God has seen it. Sin has just now made us aware of that which God has always seen. He has never ceased to be aware of it. Therefore, it's crucial that we fear unbelief. And that is what the text is calling us to do. The truth of walking with Christ is that his righteousness is our covering robe that like the skins of animals covered our nakedness. And is still covering our nakedness. Now to consider what we as man do to try to hide from God. Let's, let's look at what was happening. To walk away without Him, without Christ, means that we are left not only condemned, because He is that covering, we're not left only condemned, but we're left shamed, we're left afraid, we have left cold, and we're the victims of imminent death because we have no garment, we have no covering that will shield us from the elements of this world. A dying world. The strange thing is that Adam thought he could hide this nakedness. And like with the word that is used here, open, which can be translated poorly clothed or naked, the openness does more damage in revealing nakedness than remaining altogether naked. I want you to think, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough thing to comprehend, but just work with me here. Think about this. Adam sinned by thinking that he could hide from God. He assumed that God was like man, 
and that somehow he could get behind a tree or a bush or he could move to a different place and God wouldn't be able to find him. But in doing this, he also used leaves to cover his nakedness. And this betrayed the knowledge of God. Cover him himself with these leaves. This betrayed the knowledge, his knowledge of God. If God could be so easily fooled, not seeing the nakedness of Adam because he was covering it with the leaves, it would have been better for Adam to instead to have remained naked than to clothe himself with these leaves. According to Adam's incorrect view of God, God would have been none the wiser to Adam's sin if he would have just stayed naked. He'd be like, look, we're naked, but we ain't going to tell him. If he could hide from God, that would have been how God would have viewed him, right? He would have been better just to stay naked. Poor Adam. He had hardened in some ways his own heart and he was self-deceived. That wasn't the case. Leaves or no leaves, God knew that Adam was naked and he saw it before Adam had any clue. Not only are things, as it says, open, but it says, as it moves forward, it says, open and laid bare. Laid bare comes from this Greek word that means to take by the throat or to expose and bend the neck back. To overthrow or to be ready and prepared to be slain. And that's what we see, right? That they, with a sacrifice, would maybe cut the throat. And then we see in the animal kingdom, uh, like a lion or a cheetah or a leopard, when they go for a kill, they always go for the throat, right? That's the vulnerable portion. That's what is exposing the life of this beast. And the text here says that all things are open and laid bare, making the reference... In the Greek to this total exposing and total vulnerability of man. Our sin of unbelief places us in this type of position where by all means we are deserving of death and slaughter. We are found guilty. We're now at the mercy of the judge. And he says, I came to bring not peace, but a sword. All that we do, even those good deeds apart from Christ, are filthy and worthy of condemnation. We are at the mercy of our great God. The text is describing it here. We cannot hide. We cannot Alter. We cannot put a different cover on to fool God. But all things are visible to Him. And because we are sinful man, all things are laid bare. All things are before Him, ready to judge. And the truth is that without Him, all things will be judged in the manner in which death shall come. But according to His great mercy, according to His loving kindness, according to not just the promise of rest, but all the promises of God, some, though guilty and laid bare, will receive His forgiveness, will receive His righteousness. How so? The text tells us that we must believe. And then even further back, in chapter 3, we see that it must be, in chapter 2 as well, that it must be united, this belief, in faith, in hope that He is good and that some He has called to Himself. Some He is actively saving. He has already done the work and He is applying the work by the power of His Spirit, by the truth of His Gospel, this Gospel that is described as unchanging, being preached even in the Old Testament. 
And then in this picture of being open and laid bare, we see a sacrifice. And if that is the case, we should soon see that we are to be a sacrifice. God may require our lives. He may require that we enter into martyrdom. He may require that we give up earthly things. He may require all type of things. But the truth is that we know this because he said our bodies are to be a living sacrifice. And not just simply a living sacrifice, but at the same time for it to be a sacrifice, the Old Testament system would also tell us that there should be a temple. And likewise, we have that present there also, that these bodies are the temple of the living God. If we in fact are married as the church to Christ. If he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And what we see here is that this word from chapter 4 verse 12 is not simply something written, but it is a living word and it says able to judge because the living word is Christ. Able to judge. And there we are, laid out, open, and bare, exposing ourselves like Abraham with his son, exposing him to God, saying, Do with him what you must, because we know that what you are doing is good. This is God Himself, Jesus Christ in the flesh. The passage says, open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do, with Him to whom we must give an account. This is not your neighbor looking at your sin. This is not your pastor looking at your sin. This is not your spouse or your children looking at your sin. This is Jesus, the one who is able to pardon and the one who will most certainly judge. To him we, who we have to do. The one we must give account. This word is described from verse 12 on. And for us, we see the depths of depravity. And what we'll soon see described next week is the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he does fill both positions. He is able to judge. He's able to pardon. He is the redemptive means by which God is saving His people. He is the sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And we're encouraged by the text to believe and place faith in Him and in nothing else. For He sees all things. I want to close giving you this statement. The strength of a man must never be determined by his ability to lift the weighty things of this world, but instead his strength is determined by the evidence of the weighty matters of the gospel that secure for him daily victories over sin. That is what Christ is doing. That is how we must always be judged, even in the negative. If we're not perfect like Christ, we are guilty. But likewise, if we are in Christ, thank God we are judged by someone else. Judged by His righteousness. His blood that has been applied. His goodness. His godliness. His holiness. Therefore, when we look at Hebrews in its totality thus far, we see the deity of Christ, the danger of sin, the healthy fearfulness that we should have for God, and that our faith, 
must be married to our belief and must be shown and propagated in our obedience to Christ. Let us pray. Father God, as we end this time of study, Lord, we move to a time of fellowship, God, and we ask that you would bless it. Lord, we ask that you would receive uh, the preaching today and the singing, Lord, as worship, and that it would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, we ask that you would use your Holy Spirit to apply the truths and the knowledge of Christ to make us look more like him. God, as we move even to eat, Lord, we ask that you would bless it to the temporal nourishment of these bodies so that the spiritual man may live one more day to increase in the knowledge of Christ and that he may be used for the sake of your kingdom, Lord, that he would reach out to those who are being saved. Lord, we ask for your many blessings, Lord, discernment and wisdom and knowledge of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to rise, we'll sing hymn 88. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.